Welcome to our podcast here at Hope United Church. To access the live stream of our services, along with other resources and information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk. Well, we start a new chapter of James tonight. It's been a long time in the making. In fact, it's the final chapter, chapter 5. But as has been the case throughout James, this chapter flows on from what was directly before it. Um, The scripture numbers are just there so you can find bits. It doesn't necessarily mean that new chapter or it must be a new subject. No, there's there's a flow of thought happening here. A few weeks ago, Callum spoke in the previous section um, of James and our pastor also opened it up at one of our prayer meetings, the prayer meeting just before last, about how we can have an arrogance of thinking that we can live a life self-sufficient without God. It's that boasting. Martin Lloyd-Jones says men revel in their boastings. Um, And as we learned at the prayer meeting, the moment that we omit God, then we're on our way to sin and commission and sin in our life. And this next section really follows on that same path and that same idea. In fact, it says, it starts the same way. James says, come now. He said that previously. He says, come now. Um, And really, it's just continuing the idea that how we can somehow think that living a life without God is going to get us somewhere. Um, But this time, James is now highlighting our focus and reliance on worldly riches and wealth. So let's read the scripture tonight. This is James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. I'm reading from the NESB. It's probably not as too different in your version. So James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. For your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you. And will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up treasure. Behold, the pay of the labourers who mowed your fields. And which has been withheld by you. Cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Wow. That's a heavy portion of scripture. James is holding nothing back and God really is holding nothing back through James and we won't go into the various things and I think it was John MacArthur I heard say but James is really pulling on his Jewish heritage here there's if you look you know that wee margin you get we one down the middle there it's got all your scripture references you'll see lots of references to the Old Testament Malachi and uh, all the prophets and stuff and James is really just pulling on all stuff that's in there in other words he's highlighting God's attitude towards rich people who misuse their riches in such a way that it affects other people it oppresses others also that they themselves can maintain their luxury live in a state of wanton pleasure and this is the the hard truth here and this is a hard portion of scripture it does get better of course God is storing up judgment for people in this category, who we can call the wicked rich, just to save time tonight. And the first question that struck me as I read this is, who is this addressed to? Yeah, it's, it's, it's addressed to wicked rich people. I, we get that. But 
this is the conundrum that was in my mind. I'm reading this, I'm going, and it's, you start studying God's word and you realise, oh, that's a straightforward judgment on wicked rich people. And you go, wait a minute, this is a letter to believers who are dispersed because of persecution, you know, Jewish converts to Christianity. Why, why is James seem to be directly speaking to non-believers here? And not just that, but to rich non-believers who are persecuting the righteous man, as he says, and putting them to death in verse 6. And I have to be honest, after weighing up the big hitters, your MacArthur's and your James Manton and whoever else, Lesky, all these guys, I don't know. There's, you can't categorically say he was doing it because of this, or he was doing it because of that. You know, you don't have enough time to go through all the arguments. Well, what we can know is that wherever there are believers gathered together, there's always going to be tears amongst the wheat, which is something John MacArthur really does highlight as well. Maybe there were rich Jewish unbelievers in these dispersed congregations. They'd fled Jerusalem, they'd been persecuted, they'd been dispersed everywhere. Maybe these people had attached themselves to the church, even identified themselves as believers. And we certainly see that today. Churches with people who think they're saved, but they're maybe not. Um, but I like this, and Thomas Manton makes this point. He says that he thinks that James's more rousing and pressing style, that's what he says, is intended for the awakening of secure sinners. So people who are entrenched in their sin, James is trying to awaken them to that. And I kind of like that because there's a pastoral side to that. There's an evangelistic heart that kind of shifts gears based on who James thinks is listening. He's given the gospel and not his own wisdom, as we heard this morning. But more than that, James is writing to true believers suffering under persecution and oppression from wicked people who are rich in various spheres. So Lenski notes that some of these people would have been living under other Jews who were rich, who were oppressing them whilst they lived delicately. That's why it goes on to say, and Calm will cover it, I would imagine, next time in verse 7, be patient therefore. This is an encouragement, in other words, that God's justice will be done. Even though there's injustices in the world, if people are not saved, that justice will be done. And the next question that arises when you look at this is, are these wicked rich people beyond saving? Again, there's different thoughts on this, but it's not that you can't be saved if you're rich, straight off the bat. Nicodemus was probably rich. Joseph of Arimathea. Lydia, no wee Lydia. Lydia, Lydia who sold, I don't know what height she was, Lydia who sold purple in, in Acts. She and all her household were, were saved. So it's not that you can't be saved if you're rich. God will save who he's going to save. If you're predestined, that's it. But Calvin hammers home the point that James is defining that there are a group of people, and this is a hard bit, who definitely do misuse their riches, who are not predestined, and who are storing up God's judgment on themselves. And that's a terrifying picture. Terrifying. In verse 3, second half of verse 3, it says, It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. In the last days. In other words, Jesus has already been. The first coming has happened. And now he's coming back. If it was foolish to rely on your riches before Christ came, then how much more so now, knowing that he could come back at any moment? We'll probably be familiar with the scripture, Matthew 24, 42 to 44. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, 
you must also be ready for the Son of Man, Christ, is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And as we look at this topic, we're not simply talking about those who are rich. Matthew Poole says riches and grace may sometimes go together, but we're talking about those who have abused their riches and caused evil things to happen because of it. They've used it to oppress people, not paying people what they're due, to keep people down, keep themselves up. I think James just might be talking about uh, electricity companies <laughs> or, or petrol companies. I'll not mention any brands, Joanne. So, <laughs> seriously though, the adage that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer really does ring true here. Especially in statistics in the world, these are 2021 figures. This is not income, this is a person's net worth. So everything you own, um, including your income. The top 10% of people in the world collectively own 76% of the wealth. Something like 285 trillion. You can't get your mind around that. And then the bottom 50, the other half really, uh, owns 2%. 50% of the people in the world own 2% of the wealth. We do live in a world where there are some truly wicked decisions being made based on wealth. Now for us as believers, of course we desire that all be saved. We've been forgiven an immeasurable debt of sin in our own lives. But we can also rest assured that the injustices that we see around the world, the abuse of power, wealth, influence, authority, these do not go unnoticed by the one who sits on the throne, to whom all are going to be accountable for the deeds that they did in their life. And for those who abuse the poor to make themselves richer, there's a terrifying uh, truth in verse 4. Behold, the pay of the labourers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting is, has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. These evil deeds, what we see going on in the world economically, not to get political, but we know there are corruption through riches. And those who are benefiting from that at the expense of others, the cry of those affected has reached God's ears. That's why we should be praying for those in people who are in positions of power and authority, which is our Thursday prayer point, because they face the same eternal reality as every other human being, heaven or hell. But throw, in, throw this into the mix, as if heaven and hell wasn't the deciding factor, the worst thing, they also have another element of judgment on them for how they use that power that God gave them, that influence, that wealth. Pray therefore that they use it wisely. And just another dimension as we continue to move on tonight as we see this this is an extreme case James is presenting before us these people are who are so wicked with their riches that they'll even put the righteous man to death that's an extreme case but really he knows there's believers listening to this reading his letter and I think it's an example for us of what should be nowhere near our life. The sin that should just be so far away from our lives as believers. John MacArthur highlights that throughout James, he gives us tests of faith. Things to line ourselves up to, to the plumb line of God's word, so our faith would be made more sure and more genuine. How we handle trials, how we tame the tongue, how we humble ourselves, how we resist the devil, whether we're a forgetful hearer of the word or whether we're a doer of the word. And now there's this test of faith, how we view riches how we view money and possessions, where we place them, how they feed us, if indeed they do, which they can tend to, let's face it. And you might be thinking, well, 
Come on. I don't fall into the category of a wicked rich person. And if you're saved, that's 99.8% probably not the case. You've got more chance of dying from COVID than being a wicked rich person in this room, 100%. And though we may not fall into this category, we still have to realise that the same seeds, the same potential for sin that lies in that wicked rich person is still in us. I've heard it said many times before that we could have all been Hitler, if you like, had God not, but for the grace of God. And we're not talking about amount here. It doesn't have to take millions to have enough money to start to feed your flesh and take you away from God. All you need is an internet connection and a Netflix subscription and just, whew, you are gone. Could you honestly say that you wouldn't be tempted to live a life for self if you never had any lack, any financial lack in your life? If you never had to work, in other words, Work is a blessing from the Lord that cuts off more occasions for the flesh. What's that old saying? The devil makes work for idle hands. They tried to say that was in the Bible and I looked it up and I couldn't find it. So it's not a scripture. I tried to say it is, but it's not. Anyway, so the difference between those who are wholly corrupted by riches and um, those who are unsaved and ourselves, hopefully, is that we are forgiven. We have a new heart with new desires. Even if we have excess riches in our life, more than what we need, uh, we have a choice to then use that. We have freedom in Christ to use that wisely. And you know, we, we are a generous church. I think something that has been the case from pre-our reformation, we've always been a generous church. Generosity is something that we value. It's something we believe in. It's something that lines up with God's heart because it's biblical. I mean, God gave us all things, all things, your body, the air you breathe, the family you have, and everything, absolutely everything in your life. Not only does he give us salvation, all things, God's a generous God, and we value generosity in this church. So it's good that we get to talk about it in this setting, because it's not something that always comes up. We don't talk it before we take offerings anymore. So we expose the scriptures we do tonight. And again, John MacArthur makes a good point. He says, it's not about the amount you earn, but whether you have excess wealth. Do you have enough to meet your needs? And then do you have excess above and beyond that? Maybe not so much as things get more expensive, but, but what do you do with that excess? Are we generous? Do we give into the Lord's work, into his house? If you have excess more than your basic needs being met, then that's a blessing from God. Every good gift is from God. James says it in chapter one, and he has entrusted us with the extra that we have. The question is, are we going to use it purely for ourselves? Not that there's anything wrong for valuing things and getting yourself something and having a healthy value in that. Or will we recognise that our money, our money, is not our money? And that's the problem. We, we view everything, no, it's mine. It's just mine. I got it. I worked for it. But no, God allowed you to work for it. He gave you the ability to work for it. He's given you that money so that you'll be a good steward over it or finance or possession. Because God's word gives us a clear distinction here. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And we might say, well, I'm not wealthy. But for the perspective, there's about a billion people in the world who live with less than 90 pence a day. That's one dollar, but I've converted it to pence for you. Yeah. 
A billion people live on less than 90 pence a day. More than half of the world's population live on less than nine pounds a day. Now, if you think about it, it's not just, that's my lunch money. No, no. Think about your mortgage, your rent, your electricity bills, your electricity bills, and so on. Think about all these things. Nine pounds a day? No. I very much doubt it. Maybe we're richer than we thought. And to let God's word do the talking here, 1 Timothy 6, 6 till 10. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we, can take, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, or clothes in other words, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish people and harmful desires, foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And that's the key. Do we love money or do we love God? We can't love both. That's a clear distinction. Now just for balance here, prosperity is a blessing. But prosperity not properly managed can turn our hearts away from God. There's an amazing example of this back in the Old Testament. It's just, it's something that you're reading it, especially if you start reading from Genesis and you're kind of working your way through and God's done these amazing things and he's made the water stand up and he's, he's caused the, you know, all the, the miracles and the curses in Egypt and you're just thinking, he's with these people, he's with these people and it's, everything just comes to this nice little end and it feels like things are getting tied up and things are going well and then something suddenly just goes, Boom. It's an example of prosperity gone wrong. The threat of prosperity in our life. So, they take the land that God promised to them. Joshua, their leader, dies off. The elders and that die off. And then it says this. Judges 2, 10-13. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Which means that generation which God did amazing miracles with, they died. And it sounds lovely. It's just like, ah... Happy ending, but then this happens. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bound themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. And so they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. How long did it take for God's set apart people to depart from him? The next generation. Just like that. Straight away. The Baal and the Ashtaroth, what does that mean? The gods of the world around them that they began to worship. They picked what they wanted to worship based on their own desires because now they had prosperity. God had given them land. God had given them crops. God had given them things. So they now had the means with which to satisfy their flesh. And there seems to be a kind of correlation to how comfortable God's people get and then how they drift away from God. Their increased reliance on worldly security and comforts through their riches, gave them a decreased need for God. I'm okay. I don't need anything. I don't need God to work in my life. 
And if they don't need God, then they don't have a testimony of God's working power in their life. These are third, if you like, fourth generation believers, yet they don't know the Lord. Isn't this what we see in churches and various sectors now? You could argue it is. We need to be really careful of the dullness that can set in that comfort from bringing, having a security in our riches and not in God, even with the little riches that we do have. It's not wrong to be rich, but there are dangers that come with it. And we need to guard our hearts from that. In fact, I believe that's one of the reasons that we give, not to let our right hand know what our left hand is doing, because we have this sin, every one of us has this sin that is self, that's just wretched, and would want our possessions and our comfort and all that to fill us. So you've kind of got the devil on one shoulder and the, the angel on the other saying, aye, go and spend it on yourself, you'll be all right. They, they don't need it. And then the other side is saying, no, I want to be selfless and I want to follow God. Part of us giving is to crucify our flesh as well. 15% of Jesus' teachings related to money and possessions. And I was, as I was studying this sermon, there were so many scriptures that just came to mind. I almost, it was hard to manage because you're thinking, that talks about it, that talked about it, that talked about it. Whoa, 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 just slow down here. Get on it. 16 out of 38 of his parables dealt with money or the stewardship of money or possessions. So this is a huge topic. You know, so the question then is, what can choke God's word from bearing fruit in our lives? I love this passage of scripture, Matthew 13, 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of, rich, of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So we're talking about when the word is scattered, when it's preached, when you hear the word, what stops it bringing fruit in our hearts? The deceitfulness of wealth. That's a really interesting word, deceitfulness of wealth. It can mean delusion. Wealth can bring a delusion into your life. Riches, possessions, having stuff, your bank balance increasing can give a false sense of security, a delusion of security. So, and that's easy for me to say, but just think of it plainly. It's easy to think things are going well when there's more money in the bank. I'm all right, I'm, I'm all right now. I've got that set aside, I'm good, I'm good. There's a kind of security that comes from that. Or you've got more food in the fridge, or more fuel in the car, and more new clothes in the wardrobe for yourself, for the kids, whatever. Money can give us that security that really should be in God. Money can bring as well a false sense of success, or growth, or even sanctification, because I'm doing well for myself. Look, I'm making hundreds of money. It's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But these things are not impossible with God, of course. These things can make us feel secure. And there's a self-sufficiency in that rather than a God-sufficiency, if you like. And these are the things that James lists in verse 2 and the start of verse 3. He says, Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Interesting statement, will consume your flesh like fire. Hold on to that. These wicked rich people thought they were secure because they had stuff. They had what they needed and then some. But God was in self 
sorry, but their God was wealth and self. That's not easy to write, Fraser. You shouldn't write rhyming words next to each other. <laughs> their God was wealth and self, not God Almighty. Therefore, the very rusts, remember that statement. It says, the rust of their gold and silver will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. So these people who are destined to go to hell because they didn't repent, they didn't heed the gospel as we were hearing this morning. The very rust from all their silver and their gold is fueling the fires of hell and God's wrath about them. And they're looking from side to side and they're seeing their rust is on fire, tormenting them in pain. A horrible picture, but a truth. So James here is almost echoing what Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 19 and 21. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Here it is. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. And where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we do with our finances, what we do with our wealth, how we view it, is a huge, huge indicator of where we place our treasure, what we value. And I, I can remember the various conversations throughout the years with people and you maybe get to a point where you realise this person's, this person's got far too much value in, in, in money or possessions and you have a, a loving conversation with them, pointing them to Christ. But sometimes, like the rich young ruler, it can be the breaking point and they, they go their separate way because their treasure was not in God, their treasure was in their treasure, if you like. It's almost like James is saying here, it's exactly as the word made flesh said, your riches have rotted. Jesus already warned you to the wicked rich here. Your garments have become moth-eaten. In other words, you tried to live another way out with God's word, but it didn't work and it won't work. And James is saying, it's not if God judges you, you who have trusted solely in your riches, it's when that time is fixed, it's guaranteed. And what good will your earthly possessions and riches do when you stand before a good, just, almighty God who must bring justice? It says it, let me see. It says it in verse, yeah, verse five. It says, you lived a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So in other words, the picture is these people have accumulated, accumulated, accumulated. And they're like a calf that's been fattened and fattened and fattened, ready for the slaughter. They're just carrying all this stuff around, but they don't know they're heading straight for the slaughterhouse. Yeah. <laughs> Let me move on. So praise God. Praise God that that's not us. We feel like we're talking about other people here. If anything, aren't you glad you're not in this category? Praise God. May we then preach Christ and him crucified. And James says again, the same verse, that they lived, lived that life of want and pleasure. There's a really interesting scripture and it annoyed me for about an hour. That seems like a wrong statement. The reason it annoyed me because I had it in my head different than what it was in, 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 in the Bible. And it's Proverbs 27, verse 7. And I couldn't, I'm trying to find the version that says, treads underfoot, treads underfoot. I couldn't find it. The only place I found it, and I wasn't touching it with a barge pole, was the Amplified Bible. And I thought, is that, is that good, the Amplified Bible? I had an Amplified Bible. I think I've still got it somewhere. It's totally tatty and and I had it years ago, so I think I learned it from, I must have learned it from there. But then finally, 
After this is the searching we do, right? Finally, I realised oh, one of the words in Hebrew means treads underfoot. So anyway, enough about that. I felt I needed to share that with you. Proverbs 27, 7. It's about living luxuriously, right? One who is full loathes honey, but, one who, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Now that word loathes, one who loathes, the word loathes in Hebrew can mean treads underfoot. So one who tr sees this wonderful honey, this gift from God, God's word, salvation, the gospel, nah, it's not worth anything. Pfft, I'm already full. Look at me. I'm a success here. But to one who is hungry, one who is empty, poor in spirit, everything bitter is sweet. Charles Bridges, he's, you probably classify him as one of the later Puritans. He says this, a great commentary in Proverbs, that the full person nauseates the most nourishing food, <laughs> having no relish because he feels no need. If we're already full like these wicked rich, rich for us, we'll be sickened by God's word. We won't have an appetite for it. We just won't relish it the same way if we have no need for it. And I'm sure you can recognise that in your own life when you've had times of maybe being on holiday in Greece and eating loads of Greek salads and just all that. And you've done the Corinth bit and you've done the Mars Hill bit. Now you're just on a trip to get a wee bronze helmet statue. <laughs> <laughs> But there are those times where you're more full of worldly comforts and your appetite for God's words. Like, ah, I've done my spurgeon wee devotional, a paragraph, a paragraph. <laughs> I've done that, I've done enough, but you just don't relish it the same way. So that'll do me, in other words. And then it says, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Again, Charles Bridges here, he says, far more enviable is the hungry soul feeding upon unpalatable truths Yea, welcoming even bitter dispensations as medicine for the soul's health. Every view of Christ embitters sin. Every view of sin endears Christ. So in other words, to the one who is already full of the world and worldly riches, the gospel's a bitter thing. Are you telling me I need to give up the things that bring me so much happiness? The gospel, as we heard this, mor this morning, is foolishness to them, yet we know it's the power of God unto salvation. Fool people because they feel good, they feel successful, they believe they are good. And the gospel is bitter because it tells them that they're not good, they're depraved, they're in their sin. But to one who is hungry, who is not full, who is poor in spirit, the bitter message of the gospel, that you're a sinner, that you're wicked, that you're destined for hell, this message becomes sweet because it's only in acknowledging our sinfulness that we see the need for the Saviour. Or as Bridges says, every view of our sin endears Christ to us. And I don't want to be too much longer as we run out of time this evening, nearly church, but um, it's a Sunday evening, we want to kind of wrap things up, but just to share a thought as we start to close tonight and, you know, our, our prayer meeting to this week, my goodness, a quick week, this week our prayer meeting, we heard about that tenderness of our high priest who's not affected at all in a sinful way by our sin and our struggles and our infirmities, but he's able to process and carry our feelings and intercede for us, which is phenomenal. He does everything that we heard about this morning. He does that right. <laughs> but if you think about it, how, how tied up with money and possessions is our heart when it comes to our security? Our next meal, our next bill, a new pair of shoes that the kids need after they just destroyed the last ones a month ago. 
within a month, how quickly Zach's feet are growing at an unhuman rate. <laughs> really, our view of money can affect so many areas of our life. Therefore, it can cloud our ability to have tenderness to people when they threaten that security and our riches. How good, for example, are you at carrying your boss's sin when you're pulled up for something? See him, my I calls himself that. Ah, ah, ah. You just your mind just explodes, or mine can explode for a very short amount of time, obviously. But it goes through that fa filter of financial insecurity. This is going to cost me. I'm going to lose out here. Where's the tenderness there? Are we acting like Christ in that moment? And this is a sad but true story. I've not written anything here. I've just written this story. Anna, ten pounds. You can almost tell where it is. It was the other morning. I've apologised already. The other morning, I'm not a morning person. Some people are. Callum's a morning person, I think. Nobody sees he's <laughs> doing that. He gets up early. But I'm not a great morning person. So on a Friday, I'll take the kids to school. It's the only day I do because I'm, I'm in the church that day. That's my dad thing that I do. Because I'm a good dad and I'm, that's what I'm doing. And uh, school photo time. Zach says, you're not getting my photo, Dad. I had a cold. I look terrible. It's not happening. Fair enough. But we want Anna's photo. So Anna's sitting in the car with the permission slip and the £10. No envelope. I don't know why there was no envelope. But anyway, this is the point I get in the car. And uh, she forgets something. I don't know what it is. A pen to say. Or whatever it is. One of those morning rushes. And she gets back in the car. <laughs> We're driving. We're a few minutes away now and I go, where's the tenor? Where's the tenor for your photo, Anna? Eh, 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 I don't know. Eh, ten pounds we're talking about here. I don't know. Anna, come on. Is it every time? Did you know you went in? Where did you go? Where did you go? Right, we're turning around. And he's like causing an accident on the way. And honestly, and then as if that wasn't, but that then led to another thing. Right, let's look for it. It's in your jacket pocket. Why have you got pens in your jacket? Do you know if that bursts, that'll go right through. <laughs> All that stuff. Well, where did it start? Affected my £10 financial insecurity. It's not right. Where's the tenderness there? I don't know where I am in my notes, but it really can. There it is. There it is. But really, church, as funny as that is, the wicked rich that James has been talking about here, they disregard people. They treat them as an obstacle to their financial insecurity. But how often do we disregard people when it comes to money and how they affect our money? And just to close with this then, all the more reason for us to then walk worthy by not having any of this going on in our lives. If the wicked rich unbelievers will be condemned to eternity in hell for these sins, then let's not have any of that named among us who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Let us be known as a generous people. Freely you have received, freely give. Amen, church. Thank you for joining us for our podcast here at Hope United Church. If you'd like to get in touch or for any more information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk.